You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 55, The British Retreat from Lexington and Concord. So last week we left off with Lieutenant Colonel Francis Smith having concentrated all of his surviving regulars back in Concord Village. He gave the men a short rest and prepared for the march back to Lexington. His men only carried 36 cartridges each when they left Boston the night before. Thinking this would be a quick raid that would rely on surprise rather than firepower, no one bothered to bring any extra ammunition. At the same time, thousands of militiamen descended on the region, hearing of the attack at Lexington and looking to exact some payback. With every hour, their numbers grew. As the regulars left Concord, they found about 1,000 armed militia shadowing them on either side of the road. Smith sent out flanking companies to keep the militia at a distance. Then, about a mile down the road, the regulars had to cross a narrow bridge over a creek, forcing the flanking companies to fall back into the main column. There, Major Buttrick, one of the same militia leaders who had attacked the British at Concord's North Bridge, led about 300 militia against the rear of the column of regulars. They got close enough to kill two regulars and wound four others. The British rear guard returned fire as the column crossed the bridge. And as I discuss all these skirmishes, if you're interested, I've put a map up at my blog site, blog.amrevpodcast.com, showing the path of the British back to Boston and all the battles that were fought along the way. Another mile down the road, Smith's column of regulars had to confront about 500 militia assembled on Brooks Hill. Smith deployed several companies to scatter the militia, but with superior numbers on the high ground, the militia held their position and fired on the advancing regulars. The regulars took more losses, but occupied the militia. They then retreated back to the column after most of the main column had been able to cross the bridge. Minutes later, the column drew more militia fire from the other side of the road near Brooks Tavern. They returned fire, but continued to move the column down the road. Next, the British had to pass through an area where the road made two sharp turns. There, another large group of militia fired on them. This area provided greater cover closer to the road, allowing the militia to get much closer. They killed or wounded about 30 regulars while losing four of their own. To get out of there, the regulars quickened their step, almost running down the road. Militia on the side could not keep up through the swampy land and underbrush. But the militia did keep up a harassing fire from the sides as the regulars marched toward Lexington. 
flankers attempted to keep them away, and a few militia who got too close sometimes fell victim to the flanking companies. These tired and angry regulars were not taking prisoners. If the regulars got close to any militia, wounded or not, they killed them. No prisoners, no respect for the injured. Around this same time, Colonel Smith took a shot to the thigh and fell off his horse. He joined the wounded, and Major Pitcairn took command. A few minutes later, Pitcairn's horse threw him, injuring his arm. As the militia had tried to target officers, almost all the senior officers were by this time killed or wounded. Mostly relatively junior officers took control of the men and I use the term control loosely. The normally well-disciplined British regulars were barely listening to orders by this time. It was about 2 p.m. on April 19th. Most of the regulars had now been awake since the morning of the 18th. They had been marching and fighting with few breaks for the last 16 hours. Most of them were out of ammunition or close to it. As they approached Lexington, they knew they were still a good 10 miles from Charlestown and safety. A good three or four hour march, even if they could find the energy to keep up a good pace. The militia seemed to grow with every step, now estimated at over 2,000. Many began to think the unthinkable, surrendering to this mob of civilians whom they had dismissed as incompetent fighters a day earlier. Many soldiers began to break ranks and run toward Lexington Green, their immediate goal. Officers only kept most of the men in line by threatening to bayonet any soldier who broke ranks. Then, as all seemed lost, hope came into view. Back in Boston the night before, after deploying Smith's column, Gage stayed awake and awaiting word from the field. Once they had lost the element of surprise, the danger to Smith's column grew considerably. Before Smith had even reached Lexington on his way out to Concord, he had sent a messenger asking for a relief column. Gage received this request in the middle of the night and sent out orders to assemble a relief force at 4 a.m. Around the time the relief column was to begin assembling, Colonel Smith was approaching Lexington on his advance with the realization that the element of surprise was long gone. It should have been plenty of time to march out of Boston and support Smith before things got too out of control. Sadly, for the regulars, that was not the case. Gage's obsession with secrecy caused him to send two orders out under seal, one to the captain responsible for assembling the soldiers, and one to the major responsible for assembling the Marines. The captain, though, had spent a late night out on the town. He did not get the message when he returned home late, tired and probably drunk, and went straight to bed. Gage had to send someone else to rouse him out of bed around 6 a.m. The soldiers then rushed to assemble on the green. They were finally ready to go around 7.30. The Marines, though, were still missing. It turns out Gage's other orders had gone to the home of Major John Pitcairn, who was, of course, already busy marching along with Colonel Smith to Lexington and Concord. So the Marines then had to do their own scrambling to get ready, meaning the battalion did not leave until around 8.45 a.m. General Percy led the relief column, which marched through Boston Neck. 
This avoided the need for boats, but made for a longer walk. Unlike Smith, Percy brought with him two field cannon for protection. Percy did not find out that there had been any shooting until he reached Monotomy around 1 p.m. Shortly after that, he met a coach carrying Lieutenant Gould, who you may recall from last week had been scalped and left for dead at North Bridge that morning. Gould had apparently recovered enough to return to Boston. Percy spoke with him and allowed him to continue on his way. Gould would not make it back to Boston, though. Militia would capture him and hold him as a prisoner of war. Percy continued on to Lexington with more determination than ever to save the day, and hoping he was not too late. As he approached Lexington, he heard gunfire and deployed his troops in a line of battle on the high ground to the east of Lexington. From the hills, he could see Smith's regulars running in disarray, pursued by large numbers of militia still firing on the column. Percy directed his artillery to fire at the militia. Though they were really too far to be effective, the sound of cannon convinced the pursuing militia to stop and take cover. The men from Smith's column ran behind Percy's lines, dropped to the ground, eager for a few minutes of rest. The militia, though, had reformed and began advancing on the line. Several of Percy's companies, angered at seeing civilians humiliating their fellow soldiers in battle, broke and charged the militia without orders. The officers had to struggle to get the men back in line. The regulars also faced sniper fire from nearby houses. Percy ordered his men to burn three houses that the snipers were likely using for cover. After that, the harassing militia fire fell off. The regulars held their lines on the east side of Lexington, while the militia concentrated their forces on the western edge of town. Percy now realized that his column was also in a pretty precarious situation. His roughly 1,000 soldiers were facing a far larger force. The remaining soldiers of Smith's 700 men were exhausted and out of ammunition. They were more of an impediment to the column than any assistance. While Percy had confidently told others that the Massachusetts militia would run if they ever came under fire, he began to understand that these locals were standing up well to enemy fire and were operating as well as any regular regiments he had seen in battle. Like Smith, Percy had left Boston with only 36 rounds per soldier held in their cartridge boxes. He did not bring any extra ammunition. Similarly, he did not bring the ammunition wagons for his two cannon. They only had a few rounds held in their side boxes. After Percy had left Boston, Gage sent a wagon with extra ammunition to catch up with the column. The wagon left town with only a small guard on horseback. This detachment ran into an ambush of old militia. These were old men considered too old to march to Lexington and stationed themselves near home on the road between Boston and Monotomy. They called for the wagon to halt, but the officer ordered his men to push forward. The militia opened fire, killing two sergeants and wounding the commanding officer. They also shot both lead horses, causing the wagon to stop. The six remaining soldiers on the wagon took off running in panic, throwing their guns into a pond. Down the road, they found an old woman and surrendered to her. She turned the men over to the local militia, who took them prisoner. 
When the story of these events reached London, one member of the opposition commented, quote, If one old woman can take six grenadiers, how many soldiers will it require to conquer America? End quote. More importantly to Percy, it left him short on ammunition and a long march back to Boston with thousands of hostiles all around him. Percy assembled his forces into a large moving square. In the center, he placed Smith's column. He deployed flanking companies on both sides of the road to march along with the column, keeping the militia from getting within firing distance of the main column on the road. He sent forward an advance guard to clear any houses or other possible ambush points ahead of the column. In the rear, he kept some of his best companies, knowing that the pursuing militia would likely keep up most fire on the rear of the column. His men could not run, nor even march at full speed. His flanking companies had to deal with all sorts of impediments on the fields they were covering. His rear guard had to walk backwards most of the time and fire on their pursuers while marching. His advance guard needed time to clear impediments in front of the column. So they retreated slowly back toward Boston in a constant state of battle. Around the same time General Percy was taking charge of the regulars in Lexington, General William Heath of the Massachusetts Militia was trying to organize the militia into a better fighting force. Heath had little military experience, but had read a good deal about skirmishing and light infantry tactics, making use of Henry Knox's bookstore in Boston for many years. While his leadership seemed a little more questionable in later battles, historians tend to give him good credit for his work on April 19th. Part of this may have come from Joseph Warren, who met up with Heath that morning and worked closely with him throughout the afternoon. Based on the fighting before Heath took charge, he also clearly benefited from highly capable and self-motivated field officers and men as well. Heath's main value that day was to provide guidance to all the militia units continuing to arrive on the scene. Rather than have all of them simply chase the retreating column of regulars, he deployed them at points down the road where he knew the regulars would have to pass. As a result, the regulars faced a nearly continuous gauntlet of harassing fire from all sides as they retreated. Heath did not attempt to concentrate his men into a line of battle. That was where the regulars were at their best and the militia at their worst. Even if the militia won such a showdown, such a battle victory might have resulted in a complete capture of the regulars. Patriot leaders were not really sure what they would do with them once captured. So rather, the goal seemed to be not a battlefield win. It was simply to convince the regulars that venturing outside of Boston would force them to pay too great a price to try it again. Percy began to move his men from Lexington around 315, heading slowly east with all his defenses deployed. As expected, the rear guard took the heaviest fire. Several times, Percy had to rotate in new companies to the rear to provide relief. Many militia were on horses. They would take a few shots at a distance, then hop on their horses before any flankers could get near them, ride a distance up the road ahead of the column, and repeat the process. As Percy's column passed through monotony, both sides saw some of the heaviest and most vicious fighting of the day. Flanking companies surrounded several militia who took positions too close to the road and killed them without mercy. There is a story of one 78-year-old man 
who was able to fire five shots against the column before they sent a detachment to take him out. The man did not retreat, but killed three more of his attackers with his musket and two pistols before a regular shot him in the face. The angry attackers then bayoneted him multiple times, leaving him for dead. This story is a popular one because the old man actually survived and lived another 18 years to tell the story. After taking fire from many of the houses along the side of the road, Percy deployed infantry to clear the houses. The soldiers killed anyone found inside without mercy. Some regulars also lingered to loot the houses of any valuables. A few soldiers who lingered too long ended up getting left behind by the column. Local militia found several of them still in homes and killed them too without mercy. Two unfortunate locals remained in Cooper Tavern, drinking away their woes. Regulars burst in on the tavern, probably looking for drinks themselves. Although there was no evidence that these two men were involved in any shooting, the angry soldiers killed them both with bayonets and bashed in their skulls with their gun butts. In another field, British flankers captured several militia and took them prisoner. They then began executing them one at a time. We only know this because one prisoner took off running after seeing several of his friends executed. The British shot him in the back 12 times and left him for dead. Yet he survived to tell the tale. Fighting only intensified as Percy's column approached Cambridge. Fresh militia continued to arrive to supplement the existing ranks of continuing fire. Percy's men had exhausted virtually all of their ammunition. As they approached the bridge to Cambridge, they found the militia had disassembled the bridge and were standing in front of it for a showdown. Rather than attempt to fight, Percy turned his column in a different direction. Instead of heading straight back to Boston, now they made a beeline for Charlestown. It was closer and had a defensive neck just like Boston. It would also put the troops under the protection of the Navy guns in the harbor. This course change threw off the pursuing militia and avoided a battle at the bridge into Cambridge. Now, though, Percy's column marched directly toward a large line of fresh militia led by Colonel Timothy Pickering. At this point, a good charge probably could have decimated the British column and led to a surrender. Pickering, however, did not attack. His men did not even fire. They simply allowed the column to pass by. Pickering later said he had orders from General Heath not to engage, something Heath adamantly denied. Whatever the reason, it was one of the first strokes of luck the regulars had all day as they were able to march into Charlestown. The regulars took up a defensive position at Charlestown Neck, with the bulk of the force taking the defensive high ground on Bunker Hill and Breed's Hill. Exhausted and angry soldiers shot an unarmed teenager watching them march into town from a second-story window. It's not clear whether they feared he might be yet another sniper, as they had faced all day from houses along the road, or were just angry enough to kill any civilian they saw. Town leaders quickly reached an understanding that they would not attack the soldiers if the soldiers did not attack any other civilians or destroy any property in town. The militia opted not to chase the column any further and halted just outside Charlestown Neck. They eventually pulled back to Cambridge for the night. General Gage, hearing of Percy's arrival in Charlestown, immediately sent over fresh companies to take over the defense of the column. 
it was around 7 p.m., just around sunset. The grateful regulars almost immediately fell to the ground and slept where they lay. The Navy continued to ferry the wounded across the harbor back to Boston, and later that night ferried back the remainder of the force. Between the first column under Smith and Percy's relief column, the regulars had taken over 300 casualties, or nearly 20% of the force deployed. By contrast, the militia suffered less than 100 casualties. Those numbers may not sound large by the standards of modern war, but for both sides, it meant that blood had been shed. For the colonists, the king's troops had killed colonists for standing up for their rights. For the government in London, they knew the colonists would not fold with a little pressure. Both sides would have to ramp up for a larger war. By morning, all of the surviving regulars were back in Boston, surrounded by an army of thousands of angry militia. The siege of Boston had begun. Next week, the siege of Boston and spreading the word to the rest of the world about Lexington and Concord. Wait a minute. The closing music played, but I'm still talking. What's going on? So I decided to try something new this week, adding a few extra comments about my podcast. I'm putting this after the music so that if you are interested in the topic of the week and nothing else, you're free to stop there and move on to other things. The main feature here is a weekly book recommendation. I'm going to get to my first recommendation in a minute, but first, I want to ask you, the listener, for feedback. If you want to get in touch with me, my email address is mtroy.history at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter using at amrevpodcast. My Facebook group is American Revolution Podcast. But be careful, there are two Facebook groups with the same name. Make sure you join the one with lots of posts from me, Michael Troy. If you want to support the American Revolution financially, I have a link on my latest blog episodes where you can contribute via PayPal. Just look for the PayPal logo at the end of each episode. Another way to support the podcast is to click on the book links in my blog. I recently signed up for Amazon Associates. If you click on my book links and then buy that book, I get a commission. Even if you just want to buy something else at Amazon, click on my book link, then search for whatever you want. I still get a commission on your purchase, and you pay the same price for whatever you were buying. But that's enough about money. I want to get to my first book recommendation, because I think it's a great one. And just to be clear, I am not being paid for these recommendations. This is not an advertisement. This is actually a book I read, I love, and I just want to share with you. It's called The Road to Concord, How Four Stolen Cannon Ignited the Revolutionary War, by J.L. Bell. It was first published in 2016 and discusses how the Patriots stole four cannon from the middle of Boston while under the guard of British regulars. General Gage was so incensed and embarrassed by this that he did not want to report the loss to London and really wanted to recover those guns. The march to Concord was based on a tip that the stolen cannons might have been stashed there. I really enjoyed the book, and at 178 pages, excluding endnotes, it's a fairly short read, at least compared to the massive tomes I usually read, but it really digs into a largely ignored backstory about how the war began. 
The author, J.L. Bell, also runs the Boston 1775 blog, which has lots of great short articles on all sorts of events from the beginning of the war. So even if you don't buy his book, please do check out his blog at boston1775.net. And remember, if you do buy the book, please use the link on blog.amrevpodcast.com to go to Amazon. That will help support this podcast. And again, just to be extra clear, because I'm kind of paranoid about this, I have zero financial incentive to recommend this particular book. I get a commission on anything you buy on Amazon, but I'm recommending this book because I like it. Well, that's all for today. Please come back next week for more American Revolution podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts.